Don't let the new logo fool you. It's still the same old plunge. It's episode 34, and we're here to bring you the finest takes on politics and pop culture. We've got updates on John McCain's demise, David Pecker's safe filled with Trump's secrets, and the effects of the internet on developing brains. In the real world, one of the largest prison strikes in U.S. history is ongoing, while in the world of law enforcement, one brave white woman has started a seminar on helping cops cope with the trauma of murdering unarmed civilians. In the pop culture corner, we're talking about Louis C.K.'s return to the comedy cellar and A24's eco-Christian thriller, First Reformed, starring Ethan Hawke. We've got all that and more. Be sure to check the show out on Twitter at plunge underscore podcast, subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, and tell all your friends. It's okay to share the show with your coworkers, folks. We may curse a whole lot, but we have a logo now. This is The Plunge. Hey, it's The Plunge. We are back after so much since our last episode, Sam. And thank you to uh, my sister Jackie for our new logos. I think she did a nice job. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you have artistic people in your immediate family who can help us out in this tight spot. Sam, so much has happened, like... Since we recorded, you have the Manafort indictments and non-indictments. Yes. Because, of course, he was uh, found guilty on, I believe, eight counts, and they declared a mistrial on ten. Is that correct? Yes, but if you read it from like conservative headlines, there are always like... Mueller fails to convict on a majority of the counts. It's like, well, they still got him on like eight other ones. <laughs> lifetime in prison (laughs) you had michael cohen apparently cooperating yes i mean we can get to all of that going you know later i think the main thing is you know riding the roller coaster the clicking roller coaster to the bomb well you know the let's call it the crashed uh aircraft of john mccain's passing uh john mccain folks uh rest in peace i guess nah (laughs) just just rest and leave us alone for the rest of eternity please well don't expect that to happen anytime soon because the last few days have just been overwhelming it's been a lot you rarely meet great people you meet great senators great this great that but great human beings you. He's one of them. I think of his steadfastness, which could also be called stubbornness. His biting sense of humor, which could also be called cantankerousness. And I think of his principle, his unyielding faith in America's values, which cannot be called any other thing. I had an opportunity to go out and visit John and Cindy in Sedona last Sunday. Uh, He remains every bit a living testament to the fact that patriotic sacrifice, principal service, are not outdated notions or cliches. They're the building blocks of an extraordinary life. McCain propaganda just flying around every 
turn. So let's just go through a few of the things that stood out to us the last couple of days. I was particularly interested in this battle over John McCain uh, having the flag raised uh, at the White House and (laughs) Trump not uh, agreeing to do so. Okay, so the new thing that everyone who cares about norms and decorum or whatever is pissed off about, the new thing is that Trump apparently is just refusing to fly the flag at half-staff because he doesn't give a fuck that John McCain's dead. Um, You pulled this hilarious tweet from Bill Crystal, who we've talked about on the show, is a fucking lowlife, and he was claiming that like he was looking at the AFL-CIO building and a bunch of other bullshit in like downtown D.C., and that the only flag he could find that was not at half-mast was the White House flag, and this is the greatest crime in White House history and all this fucking nonsense. So one thing that we can definitely say about McCain's death and the media reaction to it is the degree to which empty militaristic politics can be so... Uh, celebrated without regard to like what what it, what the implications are to it and or even what makes him a war hero everyone says he's a war hero cool he volunteered for the fucking vietnam war his dad was like an admiral and he got shot down while bombing a civilian target and then he was tortured for for years after being captured but this does not erase the fact that he was bombing a fucking like light bulb factory. I mean, this is not like an honorable act, I don't think. We're not the good guys in the Vietnam War, I don't think. I think there's a difference between missing John McCain as like a person, like his family is going to do, or missing John McCain the politician, which I don't see a reason to miss John McCain the politician. And I don't understand why it's like, you can't say anything bad about John McCain because he's dead. Even if you're just bringing up his record, like things he's done in his life that were political acts, they were shitty. Like joining the Vietnam War for fun and then attacking a civilian target are not things I need to defend. They're absolutely things that we can like attack. And it doesn't matter that he just died. I don't have reverence for him if he literally did this did this to kill people i mean i don't know how to like phrase this any differently i mean you can also compare it to like his own his record as just a a politician who claimed to be a maverick but voted alongside trump and the republican party basically like every goddamn time it's so funny that npr politics characterized him as a leading gop voice against president trump and then you look at his record his Trump score, how often McCain votes in line with Trump's positions, 83%. Yeah. So there you have it. That's like, this is the thing that is so depressing about the McCain remembrance train is that they're all missing just this 
they're all so upset that he's dead because now there's this thin sliver, this thin veneer of like, well, I don't really like the way this sounds, but I'm going to vote for it anyway, is gone, or so they think. And that is like such a huge loss to them for some reason. Like, he, all, you hear all this like stupid West Wing shit coming out now, like how he wants what the two presidents who beat him in the election to speak at his fucking like, you to give him eulogies or whatever he wants george w bush and obama to do this when he basically acted like a dick to both those people once he lost the presidency to them respectively and again it's not like trying to be edgy or transgressive to be critical of a powerful person after they die i don't know it seems like the right thing to do to me to not sugarcoat someone's legacy and pretend they were this like beacon of honor when in reality he really wasn't that far off from despite whatever like maverick like labels he was given uh, he, he supported what was the trump agenda he passed that tax bill that made sure that his like bloated do- family would receive uh, all of his money like with whatever minimal uh, taxation. So he achieved everything he wanted in his life. After his initial fortune, didn't it come as a result of marrying into the like Anheuser Busch family or similar like beer family? Yeah. There's some old money shit. <laughs> yeah, I think it also it's so funny how many mistakes i guess centrist publications are making in their rush to like talk about how much they love john mccain we saw that uh article by jennifer rubin with the washington post where she talked about how inexplicably she talked about how john mccain is a human rights champion yes you heard it here folks a guy who bombed civilian targets in vietnam and voted alongside the republican party 98 percent, like a billion times over and over again he still is somehow a human rights champion and in the picture they used for this article you can see a literal like neo-nazi he is this fucking leader of a neo-nazi party in like an ultra far-right party in ukraine currently (laughs) and he's in the damn picture with john mccain who is getting some sort of speech we talked about, uh, you know, some stories from his past in uh, our McCain splaining episode. So if you want more on that, you can check that episode out. Yeah, I, I don't want to beat McCain to death because he's already fucking dead, which rules. And I just like we talked about how he voted for every fucking possible war in the last since he became a senator, how he was a racist who defends his right to use slurs against Asian people, voted against the creation of Martin Luther King Jr. Day as a federal holiday. Like, we don't need to go any further on this dude. So, like, just another daily dose of, like, don't fucking buy into all this garbage that John McCain is, like, some sort of bipartisan war hero. It's complete bullshit spun to you by Republicans and people who enable them. Oh, case in point, Sam, I wanted to tell you this. At work today, one of my most, like, apolitical friends asked me, why is everybody acting like John McCain? This is such a big deal. Like, why? Like, <laughs> like even people who are like, don't pay attention to this shit can smell the bullshit. You know what I mean? 
no, for sure. And like, think about it. What? What? Can you name like a more insignificant political figure? I, obviously, you can. But like John McCain, like, what is he's? What is his great significance? What he vaguely supported campaign finance reform at one point. What are his claims to fame that make people miss him so much as this like political force? To me, he seems about as irrelevant as like any other fucking Republican senator for the most part, except that he ran for president a bunch of times and lost. And introduced the world to Palin and mainstreamed the idea that you could have this completely idiotic, like, no-skilled person uh, in the vice presidency or the presidency. And somehow everyone's like, oh, he was he's what we needed now. We need him so much. I mean, remember, remember when he ran for president and he basically put, like, the fucking proto-Trump Sarah Palin out there? And, like, how can you see Trump as anything but a continuation of political forces that John McCain, in a large part, unleashed? All that Tea Party bullshit came after John McCain ran against Obama. We've beat this point to death, but... You know, I think that's what McCain would have wanted. Don't weep for John McCain. There's like a billion other Republicans who are just fucking like him. You didn't lose anything great. If all these people were to drop dead, the only reaction you would get out of me would be like further, you know, a joy and elation. So fuck off with that. (laughs) One more thing. John McCain died of brain cancer and he had extremely good health care. Well... The uh, Phoenix New Times put out a story, and I just wanted to uh, pull some figures in it about uh, brain surgery in Arizona. I guess this is um, for a similar surgery. First two surgeries easily ran into six figures, not counting the hospital stay that was keeping him alive. Without insurance, his medication alone cost $8,227 a month. And, like... The degree to which we are mourning this man and ignoring the fact that people don't have access to care and just anyone who doesn't support universal health care is basically a ghoulish blob. Yeah, if you're arguing that single-payer health care is bad and John McCain is good, then you need to take a long look at like the effect that your politics have. So anyway, uh, I think we can safely put John McCain to rest and move on to his arch nemesis, Donald Trump, of course, in the news all the time. This week, it's because there's been more, there have been revelations about what David Pecker of the National Exam Inquirer, right? National Inquirer. Yes. Pecker is the CEO of, oh God, what is it? It's like American uh, Media AMI. I don't know what, I can't remember what the I is, but um, he is the head honcho of the National Inquirer and Pecker is really interesting because he's been friends with Trump for decades. Like, you know, he's been at Mar-a-Lago forever. He is in these same elitist New York City circles as Trump uh, back in the day. I'm sure they got blowjobs standing next to each other in the past. Oh, American Media Inc. is the company. So Trump and Pecker's relationship was close for many years. The National Enquirer has been a mouthpiece for Trump uh, since he threw his hat in the ring. Pecker wanted him to run years ago, and 
specifically the National Enquirer's demographics target the Trump supporter demographic, I guess. It's not, let's just say it's not particularly millennial or tech savvy. It's mostly old people buying them at the grocery store, reading the headline. And the news about this New York and media giant this week is that he has been granted full immunity by prosecutors who are investigating the president's hush money that he paid to Stormy Daniels and an additional Playboy actress, Karen McDougal, with whom uh, he had an affair with both. Yeah, so basically what they're saying the National Enquirer did was catch and kill journalism where they would pay for the rights for these kind of juicy stories about Trump's personal life and then just sit on them and basically not publish them so that the story didn't get out and then hurt Trump's chances of election. Uh, At one point, they paid $30,000 to a doorman uh, who worked for Donald Trump to quash stories about a potential love or like an alleged loved child that Trump had in a very kind of uh, Drake scenario. So Pecker in the past and the National Enquirer have broken some big stories. They did uh, sink John Edwards's political career with the story of him cheating on his wife who had cancer. You remember that, right, Sam? Yeah, no, I do remember the John Edwards thing. And that's what makes me think about the story is like, basically, if you think about it, it seems like that something like that could have, I mean, obviously, I don't think that... Uh, a juicy personal affair story would have the same effect on Trump as it did on John Edwards back in the day. But it does go to show that it it could matter that a lot that I guess uh, David Pecker had done so much to squash these stories and keep them from getting out. And I did read something to the effect of they have a safe of documents pertaining to payments made by Trump and stories they have killed related to Trump. So this will be something I'm sure we haven't heard the last of. So thanks, Pecker, for (laughs) all you've got to uh, make the president just feel maybe a little shame for like five minutes. (laughs) Yeah, or maybe at least give like, I mean, I hate to say this, but like give Mueller and all these people who are trying to bring him down like a little bit more evidence with which to do it. But uh, either way, I mean, the David Pecker thing is so funny. Uh, I like how Michael Cohen personally had veto power over Trump-related stories. It could, like, squish him at will. Speaking of Michael Cohen, let's just shout out his GoFundMe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which his lawyer, Lonnie Davis, set up for him. Because I guess legal fees don't pay themselves. I guess he was riding the wave of, like, James Comey and Peter Strzok, like, raising uh, a shit ton of money on GoFundMe for simply, like, being in the resistance. Like, you get, like, an induction, like, pass go, like, $200, except you get, like, half a million on GoFundMe. Yeah, I mean, if just the bare mention of being somewhat opposed to Donald Trump is enough to get you, like you said, like half a million dollars on GoFundMe. And I mean, Michael Cohen's not there yet, but he does. He it has raised one hundred sixty-five thousand dollars. I'm like, who the fuck is donating to like Michael Cohen's legal defense fund? It's so bewildering to me. I can't believe so many people spend so much money on this. Like, I guess stupidest shit I can think of. 
he was spotted at a fancy eatery in New York just hours after his guilty plea, which is so goddamn funny. Of course, but honestly, like people of that kind of level of grift, they can't conceive of a world in which, even if they are going down or going under or like about to fucking plead a bunch of shit they don't want to plead, they still cannot shake the trappings of luxury they still feel the need that they have to eat in like the most expensive restaurant possible just after issuing a guilty plea it's so funny this was another story that caught my eye this week why is michael avenetti like in exist like why does he even (laughs) exist because he did the ben shapiro debate me thing he wants a debate yes okay so specifically Avenatti, Stormy Daniels' lawyer, attention seeker, bankrupt fool, and all of the above, has recently been talking about how he wants to run for president. And he, he also went to the he, Iowa State Fair as well. Um, yeah, which is the like official stomping grounds of anyone announcing any intention to run for president at any point in the next few years, of course. But it's so funny because he has also, like you said, done the Ben Shapiro and has demanded that Trump like debate him and is claiming that Trump refuses to debate him because he's too dumb to do so. To which the answer is, of course, he's too fucking dumb to debate like anyone. Are you are you kidding? Are we looking at the same president here? Yeah, he can barely keep his dentures in. I mean, I was screaming this weekend because this picture of Trump with literally like what looks like kindergartners, this picture has surfaced and a bunch of the kindergartners and Trump are coloring in the American flag. And if you zoom in on what Trump is doing, it's a fucking disaster. This guy who like motorboats the flag anytime he can fucking get like the first stripe is red. Go down like three stripes. There's a blue stripe inexplicably. I don't know what flag he's looking at. The f- the funniest thing is that all the other kids have it correct. And he's like looking over the shoulder of one of them to like, because he clearly has no idea. Like what is going on in this man's brain? I don't know. I, I think he doesn't know things. He's never been challenged I mean, I like to think that he's doing like an alternate interpretation of the like American flag. But once again, this is giving Trump too much credit. He's clearly just fucking up and coloring in a picture that's meant for like five year olds. It's a real kafifi moment. And it's literally his whole thing. His whole thing is like, you got to respect the flag. These football players, you know, get that son of a bitch off the field. He doesn't respect the flag. It's your whole thing. And you can't even color in the flag correctly. What, what is this? Well, here is something. I, I want to get away from Trump for a second because honestly, you know, we're hearing about it all the time. I think it's important to note this quote from Alice Thompson in the Times. I just want to present it and see what we think. Melinda Gates's children don't have smartphones and only use a computer in the kitchen. Her husband, Bill, spends hours in his office reading books while everyone else is refreshing their homepage. The most sought-after private school in Silicon Valley, the Waldorf School of the Peninsula, bans electronic devices for the under-11s and teaches the children of eBay, Apple, Uber, and Google staff to make go-karts, knit, and cook. 
Mark Zuckerberg wants his daughters to read Dr. Seuss and play outside rather than use Messenger Kids. Steve Jobs strictly limited his children's use of technology at home. It's astonishing if you think about it. The more money you make out of the tech industry, the more you appear to shield your family from its effects. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely an interpretation to take from this. The thing I think about reading this is like, okay, Steve Jobs' kids, when they're at school, don't really need to learn anything that useful, do they? Isn't Steve Jobs' whole fucking thing that he is like, uh, you know, couldn't even code himself? And given his wealth and his position and, like, business success, his kids aren't going to need to, like, cut their teeth at these skills the way that like working class children or something do so there's I, I don't know there's like something to this and i'm like they don't have to use tech because that's like a, a privilege of their wealth like I, when i got an iphone i was like cool i can keep up with everyone else at college it wasn't an issue of like oh i want to play candy crush it's like it, it, these technology does confer advantages and it's not like these kids don't have the advantages or like shunning the technology grants them any advantages like they already had the advantages to begin with it does speak to a certain uh, it's a little cautionary there's something to it i think i don't think they're not using the products because they don't have to i think that they are purposefully and in, in all of these cases withholding their apps or whatever in favor of like uh irl experiences because they know that this shit is going to fuck everyone who uses it up if especially if they use it that young that's true they definitely have like an advanced look at the deleterious effects of social media they would have every child use their like apps built for kids other than like their own and that's odd no that's for sure odd i mean but i also can see a way in which that is like kind of a privilege like would i be watching shit on my laptop all the time if i wasn't trapped in like a nine to five job where i have you know just an x amount of time in which to indulge myself and do what i want to do like steve Jobs' kids are going to travel the world before they turn like five and have like a crazy shitload of experiences that you and i are never going to get to have as far as i can tell and who fucking needs like a tablet when you can when you're like in the Grand Canyon or something like that? I don't know, whatever it is rich kids do these days. <laughs> Dan, you also told a story about why it's probably good not to go on the internet too much. The alt right on 4chan has been taking to a very bizarre way of making fun of David Hogg. Obviously, he is the outspoken uh anti gun uh gun control activist uh from the parkland uh you know florida uh shooting and they have taken to 4chan to photoshop his face onto like girls bodies yes and they call this bizarre photoshop creation daisy and they go into this, and people have been posting from 4chan, because no one is brave enough just to dive right into 4chan these days. But they, they, people on Twitter have been posting all of these people starting threads where they talk about their sexual fantasies with like memes that they themselves have made of 
David Hogg's facial features photoshopped onto like women. Some of them are disturbing. Some of them are like body pictures, like full body pictures of women with just David Hogg's face. One of them is like a gun and a MAGA hat. I mean, multiple of them have guns. <laughs> yeah. And like this would be so unnerving, just honestly. Like, damn, what if you logged onto the internet and someone had made a meme of your face only, but just on a woman? It's horrifying. <laughs> There's an Aphex Twin album cover that's like that, where it's like his bearded face on like a voluptuous woman. It's unnerving. But more importantly, this is definitely, as people have said, some sort of new like right-wing self-own because all they do is like po- post embarrassing things on the internet. And I mean, what could get more embarrassing than you talking about having sex with a meme you made? It's absurdly disgusting. Yeah, I mean, they're talking about... like cranking it so i i don't even i I don't even know how to interpret this i mean i think it ties into i do start i'm starting to think these days that maybe the alt-right is in like remission a little bit i i think their moment might be passing and they're starting to realize it i mean i hope but i mean we've we're a year apart from i guess the charlottesville uh, a t- you know murder of heather hair by like alt-right people then you know we're a year away from i guess when like milo yiannopoulos was even on anyone's mind lately we've seen some updates from milo yiannopoulos and he's not doing well so the politicon which is a load of bullshit Basically, like we're going the Coachella for politics. Don't let Dan and convince you otherwise. We're going. We are. We we're. <laughs> I don't care if about the fly you out there. I'm, we're going. <laughs> if anyone who listens to the show is a benefactor who wants to sponsor our trip to Politicon, uh, we will leave information to do that in the show notes. <laughs> They fashion it like a music festival, but it's just filled with people like Ben Shapiro and like Cenk Unger and like James Carville and, you know, a bunch of below the big name uh, sort of acts. It's like the precursor to Ozzy Fest, that atrocious like uh, TED Talk music festival that happened this summer in, I guess, what, New York, I want to say. But uh, I... (laughs) It's just so bizarre. The The list of people at Politicon is atrocious, as you've said. But Milo, like, was on there. But he was only on there listed as his first name because he, he, I guess he's doing a Madonna <laughs> thing, which is funny. Near immediately, uh, the backlash began. <laughs> yeah, people commented on, like, why is he even on there? And also, why isn't his last name there? And as soon as any publicity was paid to it, like... Instantly on basically on a Twitter thread, uh, sleep of the, on Sleeping Giants, which we've talked about before, which tries to get uh, you know advertisers to leave alt right sources alone and not take their money. They uh, this guy had mentioned that he tried he tried to find Milo's speaking page and he could find it one moment, and then he refreshed it and it was a four oh four and he couldn't find it again. So they just instantly removed it. Yeah, <laughs> and. Milo decided that (laughs) Sam I want you to read this he commented on Facebook about how hard it is to be Milo 
I, I would say this is about as uh, concrete as it gets for proof that deplatforming works. Sam, why don't you why don't you read uh, Milo's words here? The lament. <laughs> yeah, get your t- boxes of tissues and all of your you know, I guess, quart of ice cream, like whatever it is you need to get through your grief, you're going to need it because this is a sad story. Milo's on Facebook saying, over the past three years, I've spent literally millions of dollars trying to do talks, speeches, events, rallies, and protests to say nothing of all the stuff I do behind the scenes I can never tell you about. A lot of that money was my own wealth from before I even started in journalism. My events almost never happen as protests are sabotaged from Republican competitors or social media outcries. <laughs> Every time it costs me tens of hundreds or thousands of dollars. Like he keeps, I'm cutting in here. He he keeps repeating just the financial toll of this. And my theory has always been, like, if you're any kind of right-wing pundit or politician or speaker, like, why are you not getting paid? The funniest thing here is it's just like when Charlie Kirk posts, the like, him getting water poured on him. He's just, yeah. like, sell, it's a self-own. Again, he's just this reinforcing cycle. It's true. They always do this. But um, (laughs) he goes on. He says, when I get dumped from conferences, barely anyone makes a sound about it. Not my fellow conservative media figures and not even in many cases, you guys. When was the last time any of you protested in the street of the treatment meted out to me or Pamela Geller or Mike Cernovich or Alex Jones? I have repeatedly (laughs) put myself in harm's way in service of American values. My annual security bill amounts to hundreds of thousands of dollars. Just so my husband and I don't get killed (laughs) going for sushi. (laughs) I mean, like you said, I think there have been a couple events lately where it seems like, hey, maybe like anti-fa or like anti-fascist action actually fucking works. And maybe these guys are actually in remission. I mean, Milo can't get out of his house, which is fine. It's great. Remember when he was out there fucking like trying to dox uh, what undocumented people to ice and just trying to out trans students an awful awful person and now he's not out there anymore it's just like i went to the rally in dc where supposedly unite the right was going to come back and you know repeat the events of last year where, where that led to the death of heather Hare, and no one showed up for this thing there were no fucking there were like 20 white nationalists literally hiding behind american flags refusing to talk to anyone (laughs) like and they were flanked by just hundreds of police of course because the police have to protect these guys but i was like how they even get a permit there's just there's like 10 of them they got their own metro car because they took up like one metro car (laughs) with all of their just like armor They didn't even have it. It was the biggest bunch of pussies in the world. It was just Jason Kessler. There were a lot of people um, who were at last year's rally who are very scared this year. They they felt like last year they came to express their point of view. They were attacked, and when they fought back, they were overly prosecuted. Fewer than two dozen of them turned up on the day. And literally a bunch of people hiding behind American flags. Well, there was the one Ninja Turtle guy, right? Maybe. Maybe that was a different protest. I really could not tell you. I've only seen pictures of the white nationalists. I was there. I saw like Antifa. I saw Black Blocks. I saw Black Lives Matter. I saw all kinds of cool groups standing side by side with normies who 
I think so we're starting to realize like Antifa is more on your side than these fucking white nationalists over there. I mean, it's you couldn't ask for a more cogent image of a movement in remission like from than just 10 of these fucking idiots literally hiding behind American flags and flanked by the police. I mean, it just goes to show what a joke they are. And if this is like, if we actually averted like crystal knocked, I will demand like some serious thank yous once Trump is out of office. So clearly Milo is miserable and nothing better than that. That's right. And I guess on a more positive note, prisoners are on strike. Now, Sam, I didn't know that a lot of big corporations have their products made with prison labor. I had no idea. Like McDonald's uniforms and Starbucks packaging, for example. No, it's true. Uh, they also have them fighting the wildfires in Northern California. I mean, literally the largest wildfire that like Northern California has ever seen. And I think usually firefighters, you have to pay them something because it's like one of the most extreme jobs you have. But... I mean, it just goes to show, like, as we prepare for geo-hell and global warming going awry and all this evil shit in the future, like, this is a disturbing model for labor to, like, fight the most dangerous elements of, like, global warming. Like, they can, and because the main thing that these protests are organized around the fact is that these guys don't get paid, really, to do this. They either get paid little, or, like, in many states in, I think, what, a bunch of like Texas, uh, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, and Arkansas, they don't get paid at all. It's absurd. It, it, it is crazy. The, I don't know the degree to which we really subjugate the incarcerated population as if they're just, you know, worker ants. No, it's true. They're like every battle of capitalism is a way to make labor not cost anything at all be it as much of just like a thing you take for granted as possible and this is a way for corporations like this literally advertises a way to save money is by using prison labor it's pretty disturbing um but the strike is solid and it coincides with the anniversary of the death of George Jackson, who is an activist with the Black Panthers. Uh, and then the end of it is the anniversary of the Attica prison uprising in New York. And this is one of the largest prison strikes of, uh, I think, U.S. history. But, I mean, Dan, have you, you're a media boy. Have you seen much of the much of mention of this anywhere in, like, uh, I guess, regular news outlets? Sam, I'm offended that you would ask me that. It has been days since the death of the honorable john mccain we have russians attacking our elections and we have a president a tangerine in chief how could we possibly have time in the media to cover the prison strike you know what else i, I have a, as long as i'm picking voicing my complaints you guys come cover trump all the time and all this russia bullshit i don't care about i need answers on the damn American flag coloring incident. <laughs> like, why does our president, isn't this like that you all should be offended about is that our own president can't color in an American flag to the level of like the toddlers around him? Yeah, you'd think for like white nationalists that the nationalist part would uh, be a priority. But I think they're resigned to the fact that he's, you know, a flaccid, dumb piece of shit. Yeah, I mean, I guess that was 
I think a lot of them are all the people who aren't just fully on the QAnon train have had to come to terms to some extent with like our president's uh, addled mind. But either way, uh, the prison strike has not been covered enough, so we'll read some of their demands. The demands are for like very fucking you know, reasonable things. It's improvements to the conditions of prison, prisons and prison policies that can recognize the humanity of imprisoned men and women, immediate end to prison slavery, all prisons in prison and all persons imprisoned in any place of detention under United States jurisdiction must be paid the prevailing wage in their state or territory for their labor. The prison litigation reform act must be rescinded. The truth and sentencing and, and the Sentencing Reform Act must be rescinded so that imprisoned impugments have a possibility of rehabilitation and parole. That's not a possibility for a lot of people. And it's not all, you know, murderers who deserve to be put away for the rest of their life. So, I, like I've said, these are things that are pretty, like, pretty fucking basic. It asks for an immediate end to racist gang enhancement laws. It asks for state prisons to be funded specifically to offer more rehabilitation services, reinstating Pell Grants, like an actual agenda. No one can say that they don't have goals in mind. So how do we tie this into our next... uh, We want to just quickly examine this story in the Washington Post, Sam. I guess it was an opinion piece... Okay, so this is related to the prison labor issue because it mentions the movie Sorry to Bother You. This article is about the movie Sorry to Bother You. I guess you should skip ahead a little bit if you don't want to hear any like vague spoilers at all. But they, in this events of Sorry to Bother You, there is an uprising of people who are trying to avoid the fate of being like tied to their to their land to land and labor basically they don't want to they want to avoid a situation in which they are working for a company that basically feeds and houses them in like a foxconn situation but they sign lifetime contracts so they literally sign away their freedom become slaves to a company in exchange for material provisions um this guy this opinion writer for the washington post decided to write an article about the movie and this guy's name is literally Sonny Bunch. <laughs> like, <laughs> <we're>, <laughs> who's naming these people? It's a cereal, right? No, that's honey bunches of oats. <laughs> I keep calling him Sonny Bunches because what else? Why won't? Why isn't he just named that? Like, if you name him Sonny Bunch, you're kind of cutting it off at the end. I feel like there's more that should be in the name, but. Either way, um, this guy decides to make this bizarre argument that, like, sorry to bother you should, because it has such a good message about how labor works, they should send it to China is as part of a CIA-funded culture war against communism. So it's talking about made, taking a movie that is made by literally Boots Riley, who is a communist, and using it to go fight communism as a way of, like, I think, deflecting from the fact that the U.S.'s labor situation is fucked. Obviously, it's fucked in different ways and than China's labor system, but it's also, like, it's a very heinous way of deflecting from the message of the movie, I think. Yeah, I guess it is a funny idea because... Sorry to bother you doesn't just doesn't strike me as the kind of film that it's not the kind of American film that does well in China. Don't they kind of dig more of the 
uh, Superman, Star Wars type of shit? Well, I mean, I think in general, like, this is falls under the heading of, like, the people who want to, like, I guess airdrop copies of the interview, like the Seth Rogen movie into <laughs> North Korea and stuff. Like, they think that, like, some intrepid, like, brainwashed, like, fucking North Korean person is going to pick it up and, like, just magically plug it into like their dvd player and watch the interview and then decide that their entire upbringing respecting like the juche idea is like meaningless and then they i guess fight for freedom or something it's like a very like i don't know uh, kind of dumb cold war idea of like liberating people and obviously like this does call back to the cold war he talks about how he wants to bring back stuff that boost riley has talked about like how the cia spent money on jackson pollock's career because they found his art non-controversial and useful uh they talk about how they sent the boston symphony to europe to try to just basically like make it look like capitalism was winning the war through like a massive propaganda campaign yeah well Maybe if uh, they do send Sorry to Bother You over there, um, it'll become such a box office smash that Boots can make uh, a series of 20 sequels. Yeah, I mean, if the CIA wants to fund uh, like Boots Riley, a revolutionary communist, then that's great and all. But I don't think you can make the argument that that's going to like help you fight what china it's very very confusing i think china would just buy like you said buy it and make him richer indeed well a couple more things before we move into the pop culture corner we have this story which just is so fucking annoying basically this woman who shot she's a cop who shot an unarmed black man is now teaching classes to help cops sort of cope with the back uh backlash from the public and like online that they get for killing people <laughs> it's insane it's a simple crime of killing unarmed citizens that they're supposed to be protecting dan all they did was murder and to be specific her name is betty joe shelby because of course it is she shot and killed an unarmed black motorist named terence crutcher and now she's apparently the go-to to teach cops how to survive the ordeal of killing someone. Now, that's not to say that like there isn't trauma when you are on the other end of the gun, sure. But it seems like this is more just... <laughs> okay, I-, I think this is more craven than that, because it seems like she has an agenda. She literally mentions things that are myths, like the Ferguson effect, which is the idea that cops are so scared of being caught like being racist that they aren't applying deadly force in situations where they should and god forbid you're not like just pulling over like (laughs) every black person and like pulling your gun on them assholes yeah dan how are we supposed to be safe if the police cannot be like just constantly lethal i mean how are we supposed to be safe but it just goes to show like this is kind of craven this has a political agenda and the thing that i thought about this was that it's like how bill cosby was doing the class for men who are accused of like me too violations and like sex pestery no he wanted to like 
uh, what was it exactly? He wanted to like mentor young boys on how to like get away with sex crimes. Yeah, I think that it was something like that. And I was just like, this is basically the cop equivalent of that. Uh, there's some like very heinous stuff. Um, the thing that's like very heinous about this to me is that it, this is certified by the Oklahoma Council on Law Enforcement Education and Training. So like the cops are in on this, like they're in favor of it. Um, she has such a, she's completely out of touch. Uh, I read this one quote from her. She said, I faced many challenges that I was unprepared for, such as threats to my life by activist groups to loss of pay. My class is to help others by sharing some of the skills I use to cope with the stress of my critical incident. It's like, I I just, it just, I don't see how you can't find this tone deaf. (laughs) I bet she creates one of those like, you know, like George Bluth, like uh, DVD sets, you know? (laughs) The fact that she refers to killing an unarmed person as, like a critical incident she keeps repeating it she's like as law enforcement we experience many critical incidents throughout our career these two murder you murdered him we've all murdered tons of people like what is this it's so fucked up it's i don't know the other thing that's heinous about this is that the course itself is four hours long it includes two mental health hours like <laughs> it's literally a safe space. So half of it is sitting around. Yes, half of it is just sitting around. I'm sure you're you have to pay for those two hours, and I, like it just. I think self care has become like this monstrosity at this point that like everyone, including cops, apparently need just like hours of self care. Like it's so I, I don't know ridiculous and uh, very craven. What, what, do you have any last thoughts on this? No, let's just get into the next thing really quickly. This is Papa John's new ad where it's literally just a compilation of tweets accusing them of being racist. (laughs) Is that rules? What do you make of this, Sam? How is it possibly in this place's best interest to do such a thing? I mean, okay, so for context, the ad is like people tweeting about how Papa John's is racist because Papa John himself said the N-word on a conference call. It was specifically about like sensitivity training. And obviously Papa John is a shitty guy in his political and personal life. And obviously we all knew he was racist, but we have proof of it. And I think this is like meant as an apology for his racism. And there's this like typed, they're typed words that, mention responses to all of these negative tweets and all of them are like you expected better from papa john's so did we thank you for your anger and your criticism and your honesty it's like it's so weird and self-serving we didn't expect better from papa john's yeah not at all it's fucking like a chain pizza i mean think about like Domino's is also heinous they were like paying like radical anti-abortion terrorists and shit like that like i don't know yeah there's no way actually you know what fuck it good on papa john's every fucking restaurant has to make an ad of angry tweets and yelp reviews (laughs) i mean that could be funny in the right hands and probably a lot less like craven in this it's basically trying to make you sort of like 
remember the fact that Papa John said the N-word and also simultaneously get you to forgive the pizza for Papa John, like the guy whose name is on literally everything. He still owns a large part of the company, I think. Yeah, but I think they're trying to cut him out of it or something. and He's like fighting back. I don't know. It's a whole saga. We don't have time, folks. Uh, it's the pop culture corner. We have... This is like the story that blew up. Uh, Louis C.K. is back on stage at the Comedy Cellar, folks. He went on for 10 minutes. And I'm uh, working in sort of a environment where I feel like I'm not maybe getting the opinions like that I hear from other people that maybe like people who don't work with comedians and with comedy uh, here. Like, what did you make of Louis returning to stage in the way that he did, not even referring to the reason he'd been exiled from comedy for the last eight months. Uh, The fact that it had only been eight months and he said he was going to take time and listen. And what do you make of this? I mean, this is a, a beat we have talked about before, which is the constant rush to rehabilitate these kind of Me Too characters. And, 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 and remember that that started the second Louis went down. It was the question of when, like, how and when will his comeback like happen. That's how like sort of craven we are for our entertainers. Yeah, and I think a lot of people just really want him to be back and to pretend like I think not just him, but a lot of other people, they there's a certain part of people that makes them want the entertainer to return so they can maybe just they'll forget about all the shit that the person did in the past or whatever they said and it's just like what people want, weirdly, even though it's... Yeah, he returned to an ovation at the yes. Comedy Cellar. When I was reading this account, I thought there were certain, certain things that stood out to me. Definitely the fact that he got an ovation. I mean, this is... I, I got to imagine Comedy Cellar is like his home crowd. Like, these are the people who wanted him back probably the most. And maybe you're also more willing to forgive him. I will say in a room like the Comedy Cellar where it is kind of like the... You know, it's kind of like the iconic New York spot and definitely helped by the fact that Louis put it in the intro to his TV show. So people definitely associate him with that club. And anytime a celebrity comes on, usually they're going to get a big, big reception. But it was not a surprise to me that people gave Louis an ovation. No, I I think uh, in general, although we're supposed to believe that we're in this moment of just like alt, uh, uh, you know, complete cultural zeitgeist, and we are all just universally condemning men for their wrong actions. I think there's just a shitload of people who want shit like this to happen and for Louis to come back, and they'll forget about it just like they always did in the past. And I, his decision to do it isn't really that interesting to me because of course he's gonna want to take advantage of like what is kind of obvious to I think anyone in the know, especially like the way he did it kind of unannounced 
and he caught people by surprise. People were already laughing like they'd been warmed up. I mean, Gnome Dwarman's account of it is funny because he also claims to have not have been there and have only watched a videotape of the account, the guy who owns the Comedy Cellar. But, I mean, my personal feelings on it are like, I don't need to really hear anything from Louis C.K., but I'm also not at the Comedy Club. And there are probably a bunch of like other very heinous comedians who go out all the time. So it's, I, I understand people would say like I'm soapboxing, but I, I don't need to hear from Louis C.K. anymore. I, in general, like didn't miss him that much. It's kind of, I think now that he's back, I don't know if it, like, once again, I'm not that interested in his own motivations behind it. What I am interested in is like people kind of really quickly fell into place and were like, oh, like they responded and proved what I said earlier, which is that people want these Me Too people to come back because everyone's just been like, okay, well, we need to start talking about how we forgive all these Me Too guys and Michael Michael Ian back. Oh my God, Michael really just, really, uh, he stepped in it here. I mean, just, I don't know why he, I don't know why he felt the need to say this. He just did it in a very... He really talked about this in, like, the most fucking tone-deaf and, like, ham-handed way. He tries... His language, I felt, uh, was very, like, trying to be very sensitive and, like... It was this sort of almost, like, aggressively, like, tender phrasing to what he was saying that didn't match what he was talking about, I felt like. No, not at all. So the first thing he posted was just the article about Louis C.K. coming back. And he's like, I'm going to take heat on this, but people have to be allowed to serve their time and move on with their lives. I don't know if it's been long enough or his career will, will recover, because those are the most important questions, obviously. Um, sorry, that was me cutting in. But he continues, "If or I don't know if people will have him back, but I'm happy to see him try. And it's just like... I don't know. He go. He went on in like the threads. He got into it in the replies with people because he's one of these, I guess, people who wants to start like a conversation about everything that he thinks about. And he went on to say something like, "There can't be a permanent life sentence on someone who does something wrong." And it's like, I mean, yeah, there can be though. I mean, it depends on who what you're talking about. But it's also like the most selectively applied standard possible. Because something that's not talked about a lot is how much like Rebecca Corey and like other women who accuse Louis C.K. of like sexual, you know, misconduct have also talked about how speaking out has cost them personally and professionally. And you don't hear shit about that. And no one's like clamoring for these people to come back because they didn't have the initial impact that like Louis C.K. had. They're not going to get like a standing ovation at the comedy cellar or anything. And this is something that's like totally, I guess, swept under the rug. It is, it is odd how that's, it's barely a part of the conversation. I later saw Michael Ian Black wrote on his website uh, something to the effect of like, when will we allow Louis to come out of the cold and into the warmth? And it's like, dude, he's not like sleeping on the street. Like he's a multi-millionaire. He's doing fine. With a be- I'm sure he's got a beautiful home in Manhattan. Like. I- He's fine, Michael. It's just utterly baffling to me that Michael Ian Black thought that this was like something to tweet. Yeah. Like we've all we've all certainly considered the fact that like, yeah, you you know, you can't like burn everyone's feet off and like throw them into the volcano. Like, we know that, but at the same time, like, 
everything in society is geared towards like empowering these abusive personalities so i don't know man it's 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 clearly something that we're gonna see happen more and more is uh these me too figures show what appears to be like literally no remorse and then keep on keeping on yeah like i i mean like i said it's mainly the way he went to talk about this now that this is like something that should not be discussed or shouldn't be something that people think about but the way he chose to like broach the conversation uh in a weird way kind of reminded me of like remember when scaramucci was like hey twitter how many people died in the holocaust (laughs) it's like the worst possible place to ask that yeah it's uh it was a bad look yep and having been around like comedians and stuff you get the sense that like 90% of them support Louie. So th- this was not surprising to me. No, I wasn't surprised to see like a warm welcome. I was more surprised by like how tasteless people got in the discussion that it kind of engendered and how people aren't really ready to like grasp this on a like large level. I don't think uh, how to like, I, I don't know talk about this in any kind of way that's like reasonable uh, without sounding like you're just apologizing for uh you know a, a sexual pest as we say and just ultimately i th- i think the story that needs to come out is like to what degree did uh he or his management uh stifle the careers of the women he jerked off in front of and really i don't see that there's anything he could really do to like win me or i think a lot of his uh sort of uh disappointed fans back who i don't know i didn't think that his comedy was that confessional like it was an actual confession (laughs) (laughs) yeah oh man and that's that's a very apt observation because like so much of the criticism of the show is like this isn't even comedy it's just like dark confessional tv (laughs) Yeah, I hear Matt Lauer is going to drop in at the cellar this week. Ooh, that's another hot ticket. There's probably like a wide betting pool on like how long it's going to take to rehabilitate a Me Too person. Okay, so perfect segue into First Reform. Yep, we're talking about the drama written and directed by Paul Schrader. I've decided to keep a journal to set down all my thoughts and the simple events of my day. I will keep this diary for one year, and at the end of that time, it will be destroyed. I encouraged my son to enlist. It was a family tradition. Six months later, he was dead in Iraq. I was lost. My son's the reading of the Lord. Praise be God. So how are you? I'm fine. No, really. It's been a while since we've talked. Even a pastor needs a pastor. Did you see the doctor? You need someone to take care of you. I want you to be happy. I know that nothing can change, and I know there is no hope. Reverend Toller? Yes, Mary? You must come over. You must come over now. Explosives. She was becoming someone I didn't know. Opportunistic diseases, anarchy, martial law. You will live to see this. You had no idea that he was thinking of. No, I'm so frightened. 
kids, they want certainty. You know, don't think, follow. They fall prey to extremism. It's a world without hope. No, I have not lost my faith. Honestly, one of the best movies I've seen all year. Uh, yes. You got Ethan Hawke, you got Amanda Seyfried, and Cedric the Entertainer. Excellent performance. I've never seen him in a dramatic role before. No, he was he he really landed it. You didn't have any sense of like disbelief or I, I mean, there are times where I feel like because he plays like kind of like a flashy, I mean, you know, guy in the church business. He's like uh, there are times where he like kind of taps into like his, you know, more familiar material as like a comedic entertainer. But I think he landed it pretty well. And uh, the movie itself was amazing, especially with the themes it brought up. I was not expecting it to like it as, expecting to like it as much as I did. Yeah, we're going to do spoilers here, so skip a little bit ahead if uh, that is uh, not to your liking. So you have Ethan Hawke as Reverend Toller, who is the reverend of a 250-year-old Dutch Reformed church that has been redesigned or revamped a little bit because basically no one's going there, and it's it, it's really just kind of a monument to the Underground Railroad stop that was there. It seems like it's kind of a passion project, more or less. Right, and Ethan Hawke plays the you know the pastor of this church in a stunning performance. Like I thought he was just fucking, like, he really landed it. And, uh, I mean, Ethan Hawke's been in a lot of shit, but it's cool when he, like, he can still turn out, like, a performance like this. But uh, this the, the plot revolves around his connection to this like religious or uh, like I guess a environmental extremist like he's like a, a environmental terrorist. Yes, and his name is Michael, and he is married to Mary, who uh, is played by Amanda Seyfried, and Mary comes to the Reverend and tells him that. Her husband is sort of depressed and like he wants to get her to get an abortion because he doesn't want to bring his child into a world that will be completely ravaged by climate change. And that leads to, I guess, the sort of jumping off point for the film, which is that he... Michael commits suicide. Yeah, and of course it leads the Reverend to start to, I guess uh, he's sympathetic to to Michael, and he starts to think about this. And I thought that theme specifically, the idea of like, is it justified to bring a child into a world of complete, like we're going into, just in complete, uh, you know, environmental collapse? Well, I've said it before, we'll be e- you know eating each other and fighting water wars within like a few decades. And I mean, it's something that I think about a lot. It's like, do you want to get married? Do you want to go to grad school? Do you want to do all these like life decisions? I'm like, is there going to be a place where we can do this? Like, it just, it's something that's like, it's very uh, interesting because it mixes like references of the past with the church and the, I guess it's importance as a stop on the Underground Railroad with just the impending doom of the future and like a religious man kind of caught in the middle. It was fascinating. And as Reverend Toller sort of, like, gets deeper down the rabbit hole of, like, realizing that the church's donor worked for an energy company, 
a polluter, an industrialist, and he is extremely conflicted about this once he finds this out and argues with Cedric the Entertainer's character about the morality of accepting money from the industrialist who is a polluter of the environment. It kind of also played up a theory of mine, which is that in order to make money, you have to make the world worse. The highest paid jobs are the jobs where you suck the most life out of like humans and the earth, I think. And uh, at the end of the day, this movie made that case really like the only choice these guys have is to like sell out to this guy who is simultaneously driving like environmental collapse. And also, I guess, uh, Ethan Hawke's, you know, complete like fucking crisis of faith and he was dealing with his own i guess before the movie starts taller is going through a divorce that kind of came after his son was killed in the iraq war which toller had encouraged him to join the armed forces so he blames himself for his son's death and as the film goes on much like uh, Paul Schrader, his script for Taxi Driver, in First Reformed, you really see the radicalization and like detachment from other people in the world that would allow someone to do something very, very drastic. Yeah, this definitely reminds me of Taxi Driver, which we've, of course, talked about on the show. And, uh, yeah, I guess the very kind of, like, reasonable, environmental, I mean, I'm using that word figuratively, but really, in this case, literally environmental concerns and conditions that lead people to, like, do something drastic or, you know, commit an act of terrorism. And uh, I thought it was very just, I hadn't seen a movie in a while that kind of wrestled with these themes. I feel like this is even, even though it's very timely and it seems like a movie that, people would be jumping all over this. This was a 24 as well, which is a studio that we've talked about before on the show. Uh, we watched hereditary on the show before I discussed some of the other ones. There is a relationship he develops with Mary who, after like the loss of her husband, you know, seeks spiritual guidance from Toller and, he is kind of hiding his pain from everyone else. And really the film builds to the point where he's definitely like an alcoholic. And he, while fighting so much in his mind to grapple with the pollution of the earth, he continually just pollutes his own body. And do you want to go into this ending briefly? Yeah, the ending is a very bizarre but well-done scene where he really, like, he straps, like, barbed wire onto his flesh in, like, a flat, self-flagellating kind of way and then puts on, I guess, his priest robes and, like, he, unless I'm missing something, he goes out and he sees Amanda Seyfried's character. Well, also, well, he also has put on... The explosive vest that he found with uh, Michael, who committed suicide, in his stuff that he was supposed to destroy, but he held on to it. And he was going to wear that vest to commit a terrorist act in the church in order to kill the industrialist sponsor who would be at the church that at the ceremony that day. 
Exactly. He's developed this taxi driver-esque plot, this carefully calculated plot, and then suddenly Mary enters the room. They embrace, and there's no sign that he's like bleeding or anything. They kiss, and for the first time in the film, uh, it does like a full circle sort of camera work, which the camera before that's very like fixed. Yeah. And just cuts to black, and that's it. So what did you make of that, Sam? Because part of me believed that he had gone through with the bombing and that this was sort of an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, Jacob's Ladder moment, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to read the end of the movie, obviously. We don't know if literally he did it or not, obviously. But I think we're inclined to believe that somehow she convinces him not to. But I feel like that also could be an interpretation that we just are looking for. I mean, we really don't know. And I think leaving it open-ended, especially in a movie that's this tense, I feel like if it was to resolve in any way, it would kind of like betray the film as a whole in a weird way. Yeah, and there were moments in the movie that embraced the surreal. We'll leave that to you to watch because we've only really kind of scratched the surface here. I think this movie was honestly one of the most... Of valuable things I watched all year. Yeah, it's a cerebral like thriller, and I definitely it definitely merits rewatching. I feel like there's a lot in there. It, you said it was the church version of Taxi Driver, but it also kind of reminded me of a serious man to a degree in the way it kind of like <laughs> builds to a comp to a I guess a climax. Uh, it also made me feel like I miss a lot of it because I don't understand like the Gentile themes, whereas in a serious man, it makes a lot of sense to us culturally. Yeah, and it was interesting to think about caring for climate change as sort of a Christian value because, I mean, to me, I associate any hardcore religion with being sort of anti-climate change or is am I, is that off? No, that's not unfair at all. People um, who are like climate scientists and like environmentalists definitely trace a lot of like our current attitudes about towards nature and towards resource management as being rooted in kind of like Christian ideas that pit man against nature or like man is like the tamer of nature. And uh, it's, it's something that's taught at like college courses and shit. You're not off the mark at all. It's a very fair association. But that does obviously erase a certain amount of people who because of their faith, they think about things very critically. And in this case, if you're a critical man and you're a man of God, there's no way to, I guess, like approve of what's going on or condone what is going on environmentally, like what's happening on God's green earth or whatever. Well, Ethan Hawke, he's been taking some heat this week because he decided to, according to the AV Club, Cool jock Ethan Hawke shoves superhero movies into a locker. Jesus fucking Christ. This is so fucking stupid. If you still think nerds and superhero movies are the underdog, you are so delusional. As a brilliant tweet suggested, I I forgot who wrote it, superhero movies are not nerds anymore. They're the rich, annoying kid who you only hang out with because he has a car. (laughs) That's funny. I have noticed there's a shift. I think it happened around Game of Thrones 
it probably happened earlier, but that's when I started to notice it was that the same people who made fun of me for liking Lord of the Rings or something like that when I was younger were all of a sudden like, bro, you got to watch Game of Thrones. And I was like, something something flipped and like the normies, like the jocks are watching like nerd stuff. Like that's like for, like when I think of like Game of Thrones, I think of like, like when I was in college, like it was like a very fratty thing, I guess. Like, I, I don't know. It just, the associations flipped entirely. And that's carried over to the things like the Marvel movies or, which of course is explicitly references. But I think setting it up, like the AV news saying that like, Ethan Hawke is like a jock or something like, Oh yeah. All the cool jocks are in movies about like environmental terrorists. And like, <laughs> like what, what are you talking about? And specifically he said, now we have the problem that they tell us Logan is a great movie. Well, it's a great superhero movie. It still involves people in tights with metal coming out of their hands. Where is the lie? <laughs> it's not Brisson. It's not Bergman, but they talk about it like it is. Uh, Logan's a fine superhero movie, but in the end, big business doesn't see the difference between a fine movie and a fine superhero movie. That's completely legit. So people have just been like shitting themselves over this when I'm with Hawk, baby. All right. In America, there are two kinds of people you're not allowed to insult. One of them, the troops, of course. Number two, honestly, braver than the troops are Marvel fans. For some reason, you're just you're not allowed to like talk ill of any of the fucking like big Marvel movies. No matter how preposterous or like cynical and bizarre they get, you're still just not allowed to talk shit about a single Marvel movie these days. Dude, not only that, but Leslie Lee the Third pointed out that when Guardians of the Galaxy just announced that they're suspending production, or Disney announced that the third Guardians movie is suspending production. The comments on the story on Twitter were literally like, yeah, go, f- go fuck yourself, Dave Batista, who spoke out against Disney firing James Gunn and against Mike Cernovich, and like, like, fu- like fuck the whole cast. Like, they, there's no loyalty to the people who made the movie. Anything against the monolith of our monoculture is considered like this attack and framing it with this jock nerd thing is just bullshit ethan hawk you are you're a hero a king let's go to story time sam we had a horrible take on cuba by one charlie kirk from turning point usa and i thought it would be an effective use of our story time to debunk what Charlie Kirk has said. And again, Kirk is one of these really pathetic, like conservative poster boys who've been uh, bought by the Koch brothers to like be the next generation of like conservative thinkers. So he said, every college socialist should be encouraged to live under a Marxist regime for six months. Would love to see the Bernie bros try and survive in Venezuela without running water, food, shelter, or Wi-Fi. Socialism sounds great till it kills you and your family. So, Sam, you were a college socialist who lived in a conceivably socialist country. What was that like? Does Charlie nail it here? The gummy monstrosity Charlie Kirk. 
like all of Charlie Kirk's, you know, questions, they're not asked in good faith. Like, Cuba is f- largely fine. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't have any kind of, like, socialist issues, I guess you would say, like running out of food or water or something like that. I mean, I I think that they incorrectly phrase the issues that developing countries face as socialist issues. Not in the case of Venezuela, but Venezuela is also barely a socialist country. I mean, Venezuela's current, current predicament is based on its government selling off most of its, like, money to and assets to the mafia it's not really a good example of a socialist country uh or a marxist leninist country for that matter cuba is a good example of a marxist leninist country and if you compare cuba to other countries in the in the caribbean cuba's doing pretty fucking well after the hurricane in um uh, that hit you know Puerto Rico and killed 3000 people and Cuba didn't have nearly as much damage or, de- or as high of a death toll because the Cuban government operates efficiently and is incentivized to keep people alive. Like they just show up with buses and bus you out to the center. Like Cuba has sprawling social programs for its people. They're not as good as they could be, but the intent is there. And I don't think that it's fair to like, just characterize it as like full misery. Like you'll never have Wi-Fi. Clearly, Internet is, like, hard to come by, but most people find a way to access it. Not as many people as there could be. But like I said, these issues are largely divorced from the problems that... A lot of this is due to, like, the embargo, which is the obvious elephant in the room when you're discussing anything in Cuba. They always have billboards in Cuba up against the embargo because it's a big fucking deal. controls what they can do with the United States, but also controls a lot of what they can get from other countries. And that's what's responsible for a lot of the scarcities that they experience. It's responsible for a lot of what, you know, they consider like deprivation in Cuba. A lot of things that Cuba is devoid of, I mean, I would say extreme poverty compared to the rest of the Caribbean, it's it's doing a lot better. They did build highways in like what were once shanty towns. We would always meet people who lived in like the um, apartments that they had recently constructed, like outside of Havana and like the swampier areas. People who've been like li- like they tore down the shanty towns and just put down apartment buildings that have structural issues for sure and aren't always perfect. But like I said, the intent is there, and those people are thankful as hell to the revolution. I think with Cuba and a lot of like communist or Marxist-Leninist countries, you always hear like bourgeois accounts that are people who escaped it or like who were rich, like in Cuba's case, like they were probably people who owned slaves previous, like a few generations previous. I mean, these aren't like good people and they like preside over a very deeply unequal state. I mean, one of the most uh, telling things is I would always meet people who were old enough to remember the revolution. And they would say like, they weren't happy with the way things were, but you could always trick them. You'd be like, what was it like before the revolution? They'd be like, Oh, you weren't allowed to like leave your house. Everything was pretty back then. And I was like, what do you mean you weren't allowed to leave your house? And they'd be like, there were tons of gangs running through the street. Like at that point, the mafia, like American mafia controlled so much of Cuba. So much of it had been sold off to people that I would say most people in Cuba do agree that the revolution had to exist, even though if they're not happy about the way it's turned out. Um, Either way, like there's a mul- there are a lot of people who feel very differently about Cuba, but I think like the voices you hear most frequently are like people who agree with Charlie Kirk and think that socialism equals like deprivation, which is something that like capitalist countries like the U.S. set up on purpose. Indeed, and what was your most 
unique to Cuba experience in Cuba? If there's any any one experience stand out. I mean, Cuba just rules in general. There are people like every Wednesday we would go see like amazing f- like Afro-Cuban funk music. There's just such a tradition of like people are unbelievable dancers. Anywhere you go, you will be out danced within an inch of your life uh, in Cuba. In general, like we would take the we would go to the beach every weekend and people were just very friendly. All of our friends were uh rappers and they would like walk around like freestyle rapping in spanish and shit and once we went to see one of their concerts like two hours outside we had we did it everything the way that like they said an average cuban would have to do like we booked a bus through the main i guess uh like just authority that you buy that you buy buses through to go a few hours um and it was basically like taking a bus from New York to to DC or something. Honestly, even though we had to wait super late at night for one that showed up, the one that eventually showed up was really nice. And it all in all, it doesn't cost a lot. I mean, going to the ballet in Cuba was something we did every Sunday, and it cost like five pesos to do, which is you know equivalent of like twenty five cents here. I mean, people don't get paid a lot in Cuba, but everyone has a separate source of income, and people share. And I think in general, like compared to other countries that have the same stats as Cuba. It has amazing healthcare. I mean, haven't they fucking like, uh, like they have vaccines for like HIV for children. Now they have like a vaccine for breast cancer. <laughs> like they're really, their biotechnology is like highly developed. Um, I think when you compare it to like other countries that have had the same or as, as rough a shake, I think it's doing really well. And I really enjoyed going to Cuba for four months. There were definitely things that I, didn't like but almost all of them were a result of the embargo i was always annoyed at the variety of food which is lacking because cuba has to import so much of its food because it can't depend on i guess so cheap soviet oil to uh like power its agricultural system anymore and uh it has a lot of problems but most of them are just endemic to the fact that they were a small country that was part of a larger system and now are no longer just like North Korea or um, other like small Marxist Leninist countries that ended up being separated from the Soviet bloc. And people don't think about it with the fall of the Soviet Union comes like a massive decline of in life expectancy and in life quality for people in countries like Cuba or countries that were part of the Soviet bloc, even if they say that that's like good for them or it's like democratizing it, the, the impact is still something that like they're still feeling like 30 years later. So that's just like something that's left out from what like Charlie Kirk talks about in this completely disingenuous conversation about like college students spending time in socialist countries, which for the record, like you said, I fucking did. And I'm here to tell you about it. Folks, that's the plunge. Uh, follow us on Twitter. I'm at Spaventacular at S-P-A-V-E-N-T-A-C-U-L-A-R. And Sam, where can they follow you? You can follow me at W-A-G-S-T-A-N-K, my uh, you know secret Twitter haven. And at Plunge underscore podcast. And for the love of God, if you're listening to this, leave us a review on iTunes and maybe leave it you know a positive one that will help other people find the show and help us expand our reach and our operation yeah and specifically if you have people who think john mccain's a good guy this is a good podcast for them uh if you have people who like marvel movies too much this is probably a good podcast for them anyone you disagree with about things that you we we disagree with in common then throw it on we like to argue with those kinds of people
Yeah, and uh, as always, send us, uh, if you want us to talk about the topic, uh, you know, tweet at us or get in touch uh, some other fashion. Uh, and what else? We are going to... Hmm. Oh, yeah, that was it. We are, again, we want to go. We want to go to Los Angeles for Politicon, so that requires us to afford plane tickets to L.A. and back. And we obviously need tickets to the event, which, Sam, what was the, the price of Politicon? It was, like, egregious. <laughs> it's only, like, 75 bucks for one night. <laughs> one night of seeing, like, Anthony Scaramucci followed by, like, what uh chris christie <laughs> come on yeah dude we would go we would have to go to the chris christie panel oh that's the that would be the night i buy tickets for send us money for it grease the wheels send us to la for politicon and again we are always on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and any other apps you want me to upload the show to, just please let me know. And we will see you next time. All right. Farewell, folks. <laughs>